reading from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 34. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. The word of God for the people of God. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for awakening us this morning and bringing us into this, your house of worship. We thank you that we have been able to hear your voice speak to us through the greeting received at the door, through the word of prayer of those sitting around us, through the silence, through the music. And God, we pray that these words that you've given me to share as a sermon, that they might be overshadowed by your voice speaking to us, because we need to hear you, God, calling us forward, calling us closer, that we might have the strength and the endurance and the will to follow the path that your son Jesus set out for us. We offer this prayer in his name. Amen. The future of discipleship begins in the past. We are a part of a religion that is at least 2,000 years old. And so to consider our future, it is wise for us to reflect upon and have understanding of our past. As Denise read for us in Acts, these members of the community in Jerusalem, they were of one heart and soul. They saw themselves as an integrated whole. They didn't have our concept of individuality or the idea of looking out for self first. They shared so that everyone could have enough, which was more important to all of them than personal gain or status. They could think this way because they knew that their status rested in the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, the church seems to be struggling with being able to consistently find its status and identity in being like the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he walked the earth, preached love and welcoming of the stranger. Yet many churches and those who call themselves Christians support the detainment of refugee children. The church has fights about who should be allowed to preach, who should be allowed to teach, who should be allowed to get married or to even sit in these pews, maybe not these pews, but some pews. But those first disciples and leaders of churches were people of all genders and backgrounds. Our stated mission as the United Methodist Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ 
for the transformation of the world. But what exactly is a disciple? How do we make them? And how does this transform the world? First, the word disciple. In ancient Greek, that word meant a student, but not just a student who would come and take notes and, do, and take a test. It was a student who sought to emulate, to act like their teacher. A disciple tries to model their behavior and their thought after the behavior and thought of their teacher. So a disciple of Jesus is one who seeks to pattern their life after the teaching of Jesus. I saw a meme on Facebook this week that said that Jesus never asked us to worship him, but to follow him. From a book that I'll lift out after the sermon, um, it says that a disciple is a follower of Jesus whose life is centering on loving God and loving others. Discipleship then is not just reading or learning about Jesus, but it is more importantly seeking to live in a community as people motivated primarily out of love. And the reality, I think, is that most of us are some kind of a disciple, just maybe not a disciple of Jesus. Hear me out. Because as humans, we all pattern our life after somebody or something. But whose behavior is it that you're trying to copy? Is it the other moms in the moms group? Or the person you're following on Pinterest? Are you a disciple of your father? Are you a disciple of your mother? Do you pattern your life after your boss? Or maybe even think bigger, do you pattern your life after um, Warren Buffett? Do you try to act like the kid on that YouTube video or the popular kid at school? And is whomever you're trying to emulate shaping their life after Jesus? Or maybe the thought of trying to copy Jesus or act like Jesus is just too intimidating or even scary because, I mean, let's be honest, the guy was crucified. It could also be too big to conceptualize because he was also, well, God. At this time, I'd like to invite the ushers to pass out the card that we have prepared for you. I'll just give them a moment to start passing out, then I'll keep going. So the good news about us trying to follow Jesus is that we don't need to try to figure any of this out all alone. We don't have to figure this out by ourselves. Because remember, the future of discipleship begins in our past. We have the witness of the first Christians in Acts. And we also have the teaching of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. He gives us direction as we work to become disciples of Jesus. Wesley was a prolific, sometimes pointed, in fact, I was going to read part of one of his sermons in this sermon, but I couldn't because it was a little bit too pointed. I would have had to soften it too much. He was, he was a pointed
anointed preacher, but he was also a revolutionary preacher for his day. But with, for all of the wonderful preaching that he did, the Methodist movement kept its momentum because of the Methodist societies. The people who were moved by his preaching and other Methodist preaching were also, just about all of them, a part of groups that would gather together in order for them to talk about what mattered, to talk about scripture and read it together, to pray, and just to have people who would hold them accountable to the challenges of following Jesus. It is in these Methodist societies that we find the general rules. And if you have the card by now, you'll see that it actually says three simple rules. The late Bishop Reuben Job renamed them three simple rules, but they're not really altogether simple, but we'll get to that in a minute. But following these rules can help each of us on our way to following Jesus. Because remember, discipleship isn't about just how we think. It's about how we act, and that action is motivated by God's love and in relationship with others. So the order of these rules matters. So if you look at the card in your hand first, the first of the general rules is this. Do no harm. Most of the examples that Wesley gives about these um, are about not exploiting others, about not gaining from someone else's suffering. And so he says that we do no harm by, for example, refraining from gossip, from not taking the Lord's name in vain, by not getting into debt more than we can afford to pay back, among a lot of other things. If you want to research the general rules, they are in our Book of Discipline on page 75. You might also look up the general rules of the, method of the United Societies if you want to find it online. But as you look at this card in your hand, and you think about this first rule, about doing no harm, how could you do no harm? I'll give you an example. In our family, we have decided to refrain from shopping in stores that do not pay their employees fairly or are known to use child labor. That's just an example for what we do. How can you, though, do no harm? Individually, as a family, and how can we as a church? I think that Wesley put this rule first, though, because if we really love our neighbors, as we love ourselves, then we wouldn't dream of harming them. The second rule is do good. Now, if we love our neighbors as we love ourselves, we also find ways to bring good into any situation, somehow. Now, this can be as simple as smiling and greeting your coworkers with a kind word or your schoolmates. It could also be as large as, say, packing meals for an apartment complex that has kids who are hungry in the summer. And if we want to think even larger than this work that we've already done as a church, doing good could also be solving hunger in that community. As I was preparing for this sermon, I found an old article about churches buying medical debt from collections agencies. And then the churches together, um, through a nonprofit, would forgive that medical debt. 
And often these churches don't even care about the people knowing that it was a specific congregation that helped them. So how can you individually do good? How can you and your family do good? How do we as a church continue to do good and keep the ball rolling on the stuff we've already started? The third rule is stay in love with God. Now, we have this rule, I think, because discipleship is also about remaining capable of acting from love. We have to refill our spiritual tanks. We have to spend time with our great teacher, and that's Jesus. It's not Dalton. It's not me. John Wesley called this attending after the ordinances of God, and he listed some ways through worship, which we're doing now, reading of scripture for your own um, conversation and edification with God, prayer, receiving communion regularly, fasting regularly, and spiritual conversations. Nourishing our relationship with God gives us then motivation for the often difficult work of doing no harm and doing good. I don't need to tell you we live in a complicated world. Often the choice to do no harm will often lose us friends. It might even make us some enemies. It's hard to stop the conversation when someone we love, a friend or a family member, makes a racist, sexist, or homophobic joke. It's hard to vote no when your company is planning a highly profitable venture, but it will end up harming the environment or causing excessive job loss. On the other hand, doing good can be gratifying, but usually it will entail saying no to something that you want so that you can have the capacity to do good. By nourishing our souls regularly and spending time in the presence of our great teacher, Jesus, we can have the strength and the faith to stay on the path where he leads. To follow Jesus, to be his disciples, we must do all three. Do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. Now, we're giving you this card, not just so you can have a visual during the sermon. I hope that you'll keep it. Put it someplace where you're going to be able to keep seeing it. Maybe you can put it on your bathroom mirror or in your car or your desk at work. Hang it in your locker. Maybe you can even take a picture of it and use it as your phone's wallpaper. Because if we're serious about following Jesus, about discipleship, then these rules will help us along the way. On the back of the card, you'll see that we've listed the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists these when he is encouraging the Galatian churches. The more we choose to act in these ways that Jesus taught us to be more loving, to have joy, to exude peace, to exercise self-control, and maybe even have patience even while we're driving. <laughs> the more we try to follow these rules, the more we will exhibit more of these fruit, the more we will bear this fruit. And y'all, the people around us, they will notice. That is how we transform the world. Now some closing thoughts. What you all may not know about me is that my first dream of a career 
was to become a pilot astronaut. I wanted to fly the space shuttle. So in eighth grade, I started ground school. And then over that, later that school year, I started, I joined Civil Air Patrol. And then sometime in ninth grade, I stopped growing. You had to be 5'4 to um, fly some of those planes. And my vision got worse. So I had to let go of that dream. But I have never let go of my fascination with aviation. So as I was thinking about how do we think about the future of discipleship, I thought of flying. If you want to go somewhere, change something, become something else, you have to know where you're going, and you have to chart a course to get there. Every flight has a plan. Every pilot has checklists to complete before they ever even get inside of the plane. And thank you, John Post, for our phone conversation and helping me make sure I had the technical things correct. So we have to prepare for the journey and whatever might happen along the way. And then we actually have to go on the journey. Discipleship is no different. We have to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We have to prepare for the journey of becoming a disciple. And then we actually have to do what it takes. When a pilot prepares to fly, the checklists begin before she or he even leaves for the airport. The pilot has to notice if she or he is physically capable of safely completing the mission. So before we engage with other people, we need to notice the status of our souls, our minds, our bodies. Is your soul tired? Is your body tired? Is your mind tired? How can you prepare yourself through prayer, maybe meditation, or even calling a trusted friend to help you be able to have loving interactions with your family and others. And then when the pilot has completed all the checklists, and maybe even this card could serve as a checklist for us, when the pilot has completed all the checklists and is ready to take off, it is impossible for the aircraft to get to altitude without giving full power. The future of our own discipleship requires us to give it much more attention and effort than we ever have. There are so many other teachers who are easier and more convenient to follow than Jesus. We like to present Christianity as relatively easy, but really it isn't. We have to reorient our lives when we seek to be disciples of Jesus. I mean, think about it. Your relationships with your spouse or significant other, with your parent, with your child, in those relationships, you have to choose to do things that reinforce your relationship and that show love. Often that requires saying no to something so that we can say yes, a happy, willing yes to our relationships. When we begin to center our lives in love, of course we're going to change. We can't be disciples of Jesus and end up staying the same. We will grow in grace, in love, and we will bear the spiritual fruit. It has been said that God loves us just the way we are, and that is true. But 
that God loves us too much to let us stay that way. For us to soar into our future as disciples of Jesus, it will take all power from both us and the Holy Spirit at work within and through us. Lastly, a pilot is constantly receiving feedback while flying from control. As we work to follow the way of Jesus, centering our lives in God's love and working to love others, we live in community. And in that community, we may receive feedback and prayerfully we will courageously give and receive course corrections. We need friends who will pray with us and forgive the language. We also need spiritual friends who will call us out when we act like the rear end of a horse. We also need spiritual friends, a spiritual community that will celebrate with us when we see God at work in our lives and in our community. To stay aloft, a pilot must keep some power or effort. I mean, once you get up to altitude, you can cruise, but you still have to keep putting in some power to stay at that altitude. So once we get there, we don't put in as much effort as it took to change completely, but it will always take some effort. It will always take intentionality for us to do no harm, to do good, and to stay in love with God. My last thought is this. You might be thinking to yourself, why would she think, I actually want to do this? Why would I want to be a disciple of Jesus? It sounds hard. You're right. It is hard. And I can't answer why. I can't give you the answer for your why. If I'm very honest with you, I question that myself sometimes. It is really hard to be a follower of Jesus. It's so much easier to say, you know what, forget that love thing. I'm going to just go and do what I want to do. I, don't, I can't think about somebody else right now. But what I can say for why I choose to be a follower of Jesus is that I've worked with people who place their hope and their value in what other people think and do. I've lived near people who let their identity be determined by someone who only wanted to exploit them. And those people ended up miserable. I've tried to follow the path of placing my career first and my relationships later. Remember, I'm a second career pastor. I was an engineer at first, and I was miserable. Now, I'm not a consistent disciple. I'm try. I'm definitely further along than I was. But trying to center my life in God's love, to have that be my, my grounding point, my root, it has given me such joy that if we looked at all the situation, everything going on in my life, there was no reason why I should have had joy. I've had peace when there's no external reason for me to have had peace. And it's given me the ability to see myself and love the person that God's created me to be more clearly than I ever have, which allows me to be able to see you all more clearly and to love you. So, if you choose to put discipleship of Jesus in your future, I hope that we'll get to grow closer to him together. We'll mess up, and we'll begin again. The good news is that we never go alone. Thanks be to God. Amen.